In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So we've been studying the book of First Kings, um, which is the third out of four books, um, speaking about this time period of the establishment of the kings of Israel, starting in First Samuel, Second uh, Samuel, and now First Kings, and then Second Kings. After this, um, at the beginning of the book, um, we see King David is elderly and he is dying, um, and he wants his son Solomon to become the king. We see um, one of his sons, whose name is Adonijah, try to take the kingdom for himself, but that uh, plot was foiled. Um, Solomon becomes a king. Um, and then last week, we spoke about how um, Solomon uh, received wisdom from God, and also that he, in, in his attempts to bring peace and kind of his political, like, uh, political strategy to make peace with the nations around him, that he married the daughter of Pharaoh, um, and while this had its positive effects in terms of like making peace with neighboring nations, but also it, it was the first step in the downfall of King Solomon um, later on, which is he begins to marry many, many Gentile women, which end up leading him away from God. Um, and so this was kind of a first step of, of, of falling into that trap. Um, we said he received wisdom from God. God asked him, what is it that he would, would want? And he said, I want wisdom to be able to govern the people. And so he received wisdom. And God also granted him wealth and riches um, and honor. Uh, we also saw the first example of him exercising his wisdom, uh, where there was a, a, an infant that was brought, and two different women were claiming that the infant was their own. And using his wisdom, he was able to discern who was um, the real mother. Last time also... Um, the, the chapter 4 mentioned uh, many of the names um, of people in his administration um, and ex in explaining the glory of his kingdom, like to what extent, how many animals he had and how many, you know, how much gold and silver and all these things that he had, um, which of course was um, a very great uh, amount. Um, so God willing, today we're going to continue um, with chapter 5, uh, which is Solomon preparing to build the temple. Okay says, Now Hiram king of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon, because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always loved David. So Tyre is, so if you know, like Israel is uh, on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and immediately north of Israel is Lebanon. And one of the cities, one of the major cities in Lebanon, which was also on the coast, very close to the border between Lebanon and Israel is the city of Tyre. And it was in a region called Phoenicia. Okay, So um, some people say that the Hiram, king of Tyre, who is mentioned here, is the son of another Hiram that was mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 5, where it says, Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So they would... Um, the, the, the people of Lebanon were well known as being like expert builders and they also had a lot of resources there for building like the, the cedar trees that they had there were, um, were very uh, well known to be used for, for building and so the people there had this expertise. So these people were the ones who built the, the house of David. They also were the ones who are going to come now and help King Solomon to build the house uh, of God, the temple of God. Um, here, Hiram, after hearing of the enthronement of King Solomon, uh, wanted to come and establish ties with him, just as he had a good relationship with his father, uh, King David. 
Then Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side, until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. Okay, so what is this referring to? Okay, when he's saying, uh, <coughs> when he's saying King David could not build a house. So King David actually he wanted to be the one to build the temple. The temple is like the permanent version of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the design for it was given to Moses. Okay, uh, and they had built the tabernacle and they were using it during the time of the wandering. Uh, in the desert for 40 years and then it came into the promised land with the people and it was placed in um, kind of a permanent location but it was still a tent of meeting it was not designed to be a permanent building it was a tent it was something that could be portable and move around so now the idea of now that we are have a, we have settled in this land this permanent place that we are we want to build a permanent structure which would be the temple of god so we read in first chronicles chapter 22 there is this conversation between David and Solomon about the construction of the temple. And it says, And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon. For I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So this was uh, what God had promised David from the beginning, that even though David was keen, to building the temple at his, in, his, in his time, but God told him, "No, you have you know uh, you you have waged war, and He wanted the the temple to be built in, in a time of peace because the temple is kind of representing the reconciliation between God and man. It is bringing peace. It is not a time of war. It's not that God was condemning King David for the wars that he went on because actually God had ex had had expected that the people would go to war and they would subdue the land." Okay, so it wasn't that God is rebuking King David for being warlike because this was necessary for him. Um, but he's saying now is this is not the time. Like his the, the, the era of King David was the era of subduing the land, right? The era of King Solomon, now that the land had been subdued and it is a time of peace, it is the time to build the temple. Um, so we see how God has this plan that kind of unfolds. Maybe King David thought that he was doing a good thing, you know, like anyone who's zealous like King David. He cared about the house of God. He wanted to put the resources to building the house of God. And so in the mind of King David, he's doing something good. But God has said, yes, even though what you do is good, the timing is not good, right? And this is, of course, something that is in the mind of God that maybe we as human beings don't comprehend. What is the right time to do something? So sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where there is something good that we want to happen whether it's something within our control we want to do or whether something good that we want to happen in the world and it doesn't happen and we ask the question why right maybe it is a good thing but maybe the timing is not good maybe the timing is 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 not the right timing and we need to wait for the timing that god has prepared so that we can um, benefit from this thing right and god has his insights and his plan for it but now the lord my god has given me rest on every side there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence, meaning that there is peace, right? Um, there is peace, which is exactly what uh, 
what what was being said in the in, in first chronicles that we just read god was saying we will wait for the time of peace during the time of your son solomon okay what's interesting here is that the word adversary in hebrew is actually the word satan right the word satan is um is is what is the world that is being translated as adversary and in other places in the scripture that same word when it's referring to the evil one when it's referring specifically to satan is actually translated satan here it is translated as there is no adversary, but the word is Satan, which kind of links the existence of Satan to the existence of the enemies of God. Like these adversaries are the enemies of God that are driven by Satan, whether they realize it or not. The enemies of God are those who are, are waging war against us. They are being um, deceived by the enemy. They are being influenced by him. And for whatever reason, they're coming to fight and attack us so saying there is like these attacks that are coming against us but now god has granted us a period of peace where there is no adversary or evil occurrence of course it doesn't mean satan it doesn't exist it just means god is protecting the kingdom for a time to experience this like like uh this golden era right this era of peace that we experience um and again i i you know kind of like what king solomon writes in the book of ecclesiastes where he says there's a time for for everything right there's there's a time for peace and there's a time for war there's time for joy and, and laughter and there's a time for mourning and sorrow um, god grants us different seasons of life and while we might be in a in a specific season it is kind of for a specific purpose but it doesn't mean that that season will last forever whether that season be a pleasant season or whether that season be a painful and difficult season, sometimes when we are in these seasons, we begin to think that this is, the, this is my life, like the whole life is going to be like this. But no, there are different seasons of time, and each one is categorized by a different kind of aspect and characteristics. God has his plan and his timing. There was a time for war in the time of King David, and there is a time for peace in the time of King Solomon. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. This is from the conversation we read just earlier in First Chronicles. Now, therefore, command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has the skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. Okay, so again, um, the Sidonians were like the people living in Lebanon. Okay, and they were very skilled in cutting and building. And so King Solomon is saying, uh, "Go and and help us in this endeavor, and and my servants will be like your servants. Like they will do the work with you, and you command them and tell them what it is, um, what it is that they they should do. Also, the the advantage of uh, the city of Tyre is because it's a coastal city. Whatever trees are cut down and the lumber that they prepare, they can ship it by sea down south to Israel uh, easily. Because how is it you're going to transport all of these trees? Um, you can transport them by boat. So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. Then Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the message which you sent me, and I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea, and I will float them in rafts by the sea to the place you indicate to me, and will have them broken apart there. Then you can take them away. 
and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. Okay, so he, they're, they're having this um, agreement, like in return for the trees and their craftsmanship, Solomon would provide food for Hiram's kingdom. So this was kind of his payment. Um, uh, we will give you of our resources and you give us the food. Then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of pressed oil. Thus Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. Okay, and you can kind of see here in the map where Tyre is relative um, to Jerusalem. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon and the two of them made a treaty together. So again, th the name Solomon means peace, and now he is brokering this peace between the Phoenicians and the Egyptians. And actually, according to uh, Josephus, who was a famous Jewish historian, um, this document, the treaty that they made together, uh, was actually found in these archives of both Israel and Tyre. So it was it was a, it was something documented, and it was there in the kingdom so of Hiram, Hiram's kingdom and the city of Tyre. It was also found in the kingdom of Israel under the reign of King Solomon. Um, so it was a documented known treaty that they had together. Um, also where he mentions uh, that he would provide this um, pressed oil. He says what? And 20 cores of pressed oil. The pressed oil is essentially like pressed olives. It's like olive oil where they would get the olives and they would press, they would crush the oil and by pressing it down and squeezing it out and getting the oil out. This is um, to be compared with like grinded olives. So if you were to grind olives, then you would have the oil, but you would also have like the debris of the olives themselves. Pressed oil is where you just press to get the oil only. Then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. So they had like a rotation so that these men would not remain indefinitely away from their home and away from their families. They would work for one month in Lebanon and then they would come and stay two months uh, back in Israel. Um, Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stones in the mountains, besides 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored in the work. So you see, it's like a huge number of people working. 80,000 people in the quarries, right, to quarry the stones and get the stones. And 3,300 uh, 3, from the chiefs who were the ones supervising all of this. And the king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple. So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the Gebelites quarried them, and they prepared timbo, uh, timber and stones to build the temple. So who are these Gebelites? The Gebelites, they lived in a city called Gebel or Gebel in Phoenicia. So it was actually north of Tyre, also in Lebanon. Um, and they were very experienced builders. So um, they're mentioned actually in Ezekiel chapter 27. It says, elders of Gebel and its wise men were in you to caulk your seams. All the ships of the sea and their oarsmen were in you to market your merchandise. So they were very well known for shipbuilding, um, but they're also like generally good builders and they were also be coming to help to build the temple. 
What's what's interesting is that you have all of these other nations that are coming to help for for building the temple, because even though it wasn't understood at the time, um, this temple, which ultimately is a symbol of the church, right, was for the salvation of everyone. While at this time, who is it that was going to go and offer sacrifices at the temple? Of course, it was the Jews. It was not the Gentiles. The Gentiles were doing this as kind of like uh, like an act of love or favor or an agreement. This peace treaty between uh, the the Israel and 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 the Phoenicians, right? The the kingdom of Tyre. But at the same time, this temple that is being built is eventually going to become the church, which is eventually going to be for the salvation of the Gentiles themselves. So in a sense, you can say it's like the, the church is being built by all the people, right? All the people together, not just the Jews only, but it actually involves also the work of the Gentiles. Okay. So chapter 6. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel and the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. So here he's saying 480 years after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. So how do we calculate those 480 years? So the first thing that happened after the people came out of Egypt was what? The 40 years in the wilderness. That's 40 years. Okay. After the 40 years, Moses was the leader at the time. So after, after that, what happened to Moses? He died. And who became the leader after him? Joshua. Joshua was leader for 17 years. Okay. Then after the time of Joshua, there was the period of what? The judges. That period of the judges lasted 299 years. Okay. Then after the judges, who was... Before Saul, before Samuel, Samson was one of the judges. There was a leader who was like a judge, but he was he was the, the very end of the judges. He was a priest. Eli the priest, okay? Eli the priest, he was for 40 years, and then after that was Samuel, okay, who was another 40 years and all in addition to King Saul. So the time of... Samuel and Saul together was about 40 years. Um, and then who was the king after Saul? David for 40 years. Okay. Plus four years that's mentioned here because this is in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. So that's the 480 years. Starting from the wilderness, Joshua, Judges, Eli, Samuel, King Saul, King David, Solomon. 480 years have passed. And back to kind of the point we were saying before about the different times and seasons um god has a very zoomed out view like he's zoomed out and he's zoomed in zoomed out because he sees all of history together and he he arranges all of the events to be for the good of the people together and he knows these times and seasons and what is going to happen but he's also zoomed in in the sense that he cares about the life of each person and he listens to the prayers of each person and he, 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 you know, he accounts for the needs and he provides for each individual person, right? That's why we say like God is a God who is far and he's also a God who is near. He is like the infinite divine God in heaven, the creator, right? And he, and he, and he, he looks at everything in these gigantic timescales and he manages it. 
but he's also like the micromanager, right? He's the one who who's also near and he he dwells with us and he dwells in us and he cares about our needs and all these things. So you see like this when we say like God is all in all, like he he he's at every level. You know, he is a, he cares about every detail whether the biggest or the smallest, he he cares about it. And so here we see kind of the culmination from the time of the Israelites leaving Egypt as slaves to the time where they are now established in their kingdom and it is a time of peace and they have finished conquering all of the people and, and they are now building the temple which represents the presence of God with them in their kingdom. Okay. The second month, the month of Ziv, the word Ziv actually it means like splendor or exaltation and it corresponds to around the time of April and May um, in the calendar year. The location of the temple was on a mountain called Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, and it was built on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So King David, he obtained this threshing floor, he purchased this threshing floor from Aruna the Jebusite in 2 Samuel 24. And this was um, when, when Aruna the Jebusite knew that King David wanted to build an altar at this site, he wanted to give it to him for free. He said, let me give you for free. If you, you're going to use this to build an altar to the Lord, I will give you for free this, um, this land that has this threshing floor on it so you can build the altar. But what is it that King David responded? And he said, what? I cannot offer a sacrifice to God, which that which costs me nothing, right? Like if it costs me nothing, then it cannot be a sacrifice. So King David refused to receive this land for free because he wanted to offer something for it. He wanted to give up something. And spiritually, we can understand this. We can understand that in order for me to offer a sacrifice, it, ca it cannot be someone else's, right? It has to be mine. You know, when someone were to come and offer like a sheep, you know, or a lamb or a bull to, to offer as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering, this, o this offering comes from the person. This is why it comes from the person. It is for their forgiveness. It is not that there's people just giving out bulls and lambs for free. It says, come pick up your bull and lamb and then go and offer it. It's not just like a show. It is, I'm giving of myself in my worship, right? And this applies also, of course, to us. And that when we are offering to God, we are offering from what is valuable to us. I'm offering of my time, which is valuable. I'm offering of my money, which is valuable. I'm offering of my energy, of my service. I'm offering all everything that is valuable to me. I'm offering it to God and not just offering it, but I'm, it's the first fruit that I offer. It is the, 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 the first of it that I offer. That's like when we say, like, we wake up in the morning and we pray. Why? Because it's the first fruit. Whenever I, I receive kind of my, my, my income, the first fruit of that income goes to God. Not that the leftovers, if there happen to be any, goes to God. No, the first fruits go to God, right? In my, in my service, like when I have the time that I, that I have, the first fruits of it go to the service. Sometimes, unfortunately, people have the reverse idea. People will say, well, I will come to do my service if I have time. But it's actually the reverse. It's like you need to give your time to God first. And if you have time, you do your other stuff, right? That's what, th that's what it means to make an offering, right? I'm offering of the best that I have. I'm not giving God the scraps. This is what we can learn from this example of King David buying this um, threshing floor. David had actually told Solomon all of the plans of the temple that he had received from God. And we, we, we read this in First Chronicles 28. 
Um, it says, um, it says, then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the vestibule, its houses, its treasuries, its upper chambers, its inner chambers, and the place of the mercy seat, and the plans for all that he had by the Spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord, of all the chambers all around, of the treasuries of the house of God, and of the treasuries for the dedicated things. So what is it saying? It's saying that God had given to King David, it said by the Spirit, okay, all of these plans. So King David, even though he wasn't the one to build, but God granted him the design. Here is how I want you to build the temple, okay? And King David kept it, and he passed it on to his son Solomon, who was going to be the one to actually implement the building and do the construction himself. All of the tools that were used to build the temple were consecrated, meaning they were not to be used for anything else. So you would not get tools that you had already used to build other structures and then reuse them for the temple. You would get tools that were never used for anything else and were completely consecrated to be used only for the temple. We do the same thing actually in the church. Like for instance, the altar. This is an altar that is only altar. We don't do anything else with the altar. We, we pray liturgies on it and that's it, right? We don't do anything other with the vessels. They are only consecrated for the altar. Not only that, but other things. Like, for instance, many people might not know this. Like, the vacuum cleaner that is used to clean the church is not the same vacuum cleaner that is used to clean the sanctuary. The sanctuary has its own vacuum cleaner that's only used for the sanctuary, right? Everything that is used for the sanctuary is only for the sanctuary, okay? Not, it is not shared to be used with anything else. And that is, again, this consecration, just like here, this is all of these things is consecrated for the purpose of um, the temple itself. You have a question? No question. <laughs> yeah, everything, making orban, like anything you can think of, it's completely consecrated for that. That's why we have a separate room in the church called Bethlehem, right? And Bethlehem is the place where you make the orban. You don't even make it in the kitchen. Like, you could have thought, like, okay, there's a lot of similarity between the baking and what's done in the kitchen. No, the kitchen is for the rest of the church. The Bethlehem is only for the liturgy, okay? Yes. So what is the idea of consecration, right? It's based on what is consecration. The word consecrate means to set apart. That's what it means to consecrate. So when you have, like, for instance, a priest. A priest is consecrated, which means that he doesn't do anything but serve God, right? He shouldn't be doing other work. I know in some cases, for practical reasons, there's no way to avoid. But, but the way it's supposed to be is the, the priest is consecrating to serving God alone, right? Um, even Christ himself said, I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself. What does it mean for Christ to sanctify himself? It means that he does nothing in his life on earth that is not for the salvation of man. His purpose is salvation. He doesn't go and have take vacations. He doesn't do anything else, everything, 100% of what he does. So what does it look like for a person who is not necessarily a clergy, right, to be consecrated, right, meaning to be set apart? When we set up ourselves apart from the world, meaning what? There are things that we sacrifice that we cannot participate in in the world as believers. This is a consecration. 
They say, I consecrate myself to God. I am a disciple of Christ, meaning I follow Christ. When the rich young ruler came to Christ and he said, um, what is it that I should do to inherit eternal life? And Christ told him, follow the commandments, right? But then he went a step beyond that and he said, not only follow the commandments, but also sell all that you have, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. Meaning what? Be consecrated to me. Don't just follow my commands, but be completely consecrated to my service, which means that there are a lot of things in the world you cannot do, right? And this is, again, the sacrifice. I am sacrificing of what is available to me. This is why, for instance, when we speak about monasticism, right? Some people see monasticism as being uh, like a backup plan, you know, like, uh, I couldn't get married, um, I can't find a good job, so maybe monasticism is a good deal, right? Because, see, that, that's, that's, that's not the right way to look at it. Consecration is, I have all the good opportunities in the world. I have every good thing that I could have in the world, but I choose not those things, and I instead I choose to be with God 100%, right? That is consecration. So, even in the life of lay people, right, there are many choices that we make, right, to, to decide, like, how I'm going to use my time, how I'm going to use my money, what am I going to allow myself to do and not do, even when other people are doing the wrong thing, like, I'm going to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't participate in this, this is consecration, so, so this is important, like, this is necessary for all believers, in order for us to be believers, it means that I have to give something up, and the more, unfortunately, the more that the world becomes like a wicked place, full of all kinds of wickedness, the more we find ourselves having to give up more and more and more, because what has become the norm in the world has just become so, like, you know, l like, 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 so intolerable to the Christian. It's like it's like you you're 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 surrounded by an environment that does not share our values. And it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So we find ourselves having to make those decisions a lot more often. Like, no, I'm sorry, I can't go here. I can't do that. I choose something else for myself. Uh, I teach my children a different way of life and so on. This is all part of consecration. <coughs> so this temple that is being built here, do you know what it's called? What is it called? Solomon's Temple. It's also called the first temple. Because what's going to happen later? The temple is going to be destroyed. When is it destroyed? The exile, which is the exile to Babylon. Okay, So that happened in 586 BC. This, this is built around 1000 BC, approximately. 1000 BC. Okay, 586 BC, this is like a little more than uh, 400 years from now. This is where the exile uh, is going to happen. Essentially, God is going to allow the enemies of Israel to come and destroy Jerusalem and to take the people captive. And they're going to destroy the temple. Okay? Then, in 538 B.C., okay, which is about 50 years after the exile, King Cyrus, who at the time is the king of Persia and the Medes, he decrees that the Israelites who have been captive in Babylon and Persia can return again and they can rebuild the temple, okay? So this what's called the second temple, okay, the second temple is constructed uh, uh, in 521 B.C. 
and completed in 515 BC. Okay? That's the second temple. At the time of the Maccabees, so the Maccabees were like the dynasty of the Jews that were what we call the intertestamental period, like between the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and the Gospels. So during that period, so around 140, 100 BC timeline, okay, before Christ, uh, the Maccabees took that temple and they enlarged it, they made it larger. And then around 20 BC, Herod, okay, he in refurbished and enlarged the temple. And that's why you'll hear the, the name Herod's Temple. What is Herod's Temple? Herod's Temple is essentially the renovated and refurbished again temple that was done immediately before the birth of Christ. Okay? And actually, it took a long time. I, I want to say it took like 40 years or something to renovate. Um, so it was an ongoing project. And the reason why Herod did so is because he wanted to make peace with the Jews. Herod was part Jewish, okay? And, and he was responsible for governance, and he wanted there to be peace between the Romans and the, the Jews, okay? And so by doing this work of renovation to the temple, he was able to gain favor with the Jews to kind of keep the peace so there would be no rebellions, okay? That was kind of his one of his main motivations. So here we're still calling it the second temple, but it's like it keeps getting updated, renovated, refurbished, enlarged, okay, so on, until what happens? It's completely destroyed permanently when? By the Romans on s in 70 AD, okay? And that's kind of the state where we are now, okay? We are in the state where uh, the, the Jews are wanting to rebuild the temple because they believe that if they rebuild the temple, God will accept their sacrifices. Like from, from that time of the destruction of the temple until now, there are no priests, right? Because the role of the priests, the Jewish priests, was to offer sacrifice. There's, there's no way to offer sacrifice. So what, what kind of grew up then is the kind of the role of the rabbi. The rabbi is like the teacher. The rabbi is the one they meet in synagogues, which are places of teaching. These are not places of sacrifice. There's no, the people cannot offer sacrifice. The Jews cannot offer sacrifice in a synagogue or with rabbis. They need priests and they need a temple. Okay. So there's all these stories about how they've prefabbed the temple ready to go. And whenever they're able to, you know, get back to the site right now has a mosque on it in order to rebuild the temple again. Um, with the hope that they would then be able to offer sacrifice and God would bring fire from heaven and to consume the sacrifice so that they would um, they would be able to resume the, the sacrifice worship uh, that they had been in the Old Testament. That's what they hope for. Yes. Why does that have to be in the same place? They believe that this is the place that God had chosen for the temple, yeah. right? And this is in the Holy Land, right? They, they don't believe that you can build a temple outside of Israel outside of Jerusalem, right? This is the place that God had commanded that they that they build it. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, they could have built it anywhere. Question. Yeah. So earlier you were like God zooms in and out of life and he sees like how everything comes to fruition for the good of his people, but like also the temple no longer exists. So like like I I feel like I know the answer, but like why go through periods of allowing them to build a temple in like a season of joy if like in its end it's no longer there well it served its purpose so at this period of time it was it, it, the messiah had not yet come right so what was the purpose of the temple this was the way that the people would offer sacrifice he had now established the kingdom of israel right and israel was at peace 
and he wanted them to be able to continue offering the sacrifice. So he told them, build the temple. But there would be a time where, where the coming of the Messiah would negate the need of the temple, which is why when Christ was crucified, the, the veil that was in the temple was torn in two, essentially indicating that this temple is not needed anymore. Okay? So, so yes, it fulfilled its purpose, and everything about the temple, everything about like, you know, like all, all the prophecies in the Old Testament were pointing to Christ, okay? And so when Christ came, he fulfilled all of the law. He fulfilled all the law of the Old Testament. So it was not needed anymore to follow and to offer those sacrifices. Instead, we're offering the spiritual sacrifice, right? From the spiritual Messiah who has come. So, so, so it, w- it was just, again, it was timing, right? There was a period of time where it was necessary and then it no longer became necessary. Now the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20, and its height 30 cubits. So there's different measurements of cubits uh, because the cubit kind of changed over time. So it's debated about in modern units like how long a cubit is. Um, Some people say that this measurement here is somewhere between 19 to 20 inches per cubit. Okay. So... Um, and the size of the temple was approximately double the size of the original tabernacle. So it's like many of the dimensions, they were just like doubled from what it was before, okay? The, the tent of meeting that they already had. The structure was very similar. The vestibule in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits. So the vestibule is like the entrance. 20 cubits long across the width of the house and the width of the vestibule extended 10 cubits from the front of the house and he made for the house windows and beveled frames. Against the wall of the temple, he built chambers all around, against the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made side chambers all around it. The lowest chamber was five cubits wide, the middle was six cubits wide, the third was seven cubits wide, for he made narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that the support beams would not be fastened into the walls of the temple. So if you remember, the tabernacle was simpler. It had the outer court, it had the holy, it had the holy of holies, right? Whereas here, there's all these other chambers, supporting chambers around, okay, that were not in the original tabernacle. And the temple, when it was being built, was built with the stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. So again, with this idea of there being peace. So they didn't want to have even like loud noises, right? Um, in the site of the, the temple at that site. So instead of bringing the raw stone from the quarry to the site and then chiseling it and, and forming it and then putting it in its place, they would actually chisel it at the quarry itself so that they would form it to the size that they wanted it to be um, and whatever other like engravings there would be and so on um, before transporting it. Because, again, this loud noise represents, like, conflict and dissonance, which um, was not the, the temple, like, was a representation of peace and harmony. The doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple. They went up the stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. So there were several stories. So he built the temple and finished it. And he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar. And he built side chambers against the entire temple, each five cubits high. They were attached to the temple with cedar beams. Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, 
Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments, and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Okay, So this temple was the dwelling place of God. If the people were following God, keeping his statutes, executing his judgments, uh, keeping his commandments, walking in them, then God would dwell with them and perform his word with them. Okay, So it was a covenant. And in every covenant that we see uh, that God makes with his people, God is always providing his protection, his provision, his guidance, his wisdom, all these things. And in exchange, the people would offer their obedience and submission. Okay, so, so, so this is the covenant. We see this covenant, God making these covenants from the very, very beginning all the way up until now. So he's saying there is a part that you play. Right? The part that you play is that you promise to be uh, obedient and submissive to my commandments, and I promise to be faithful in keeping my promises um, in return. So Solomon built the temple and finished it, and he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards from the floor of the temple to the ceiling. He paneled the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. Then he built the 20-cubit room at the rear of the temple, from the floor to the ceiling. With cedar boards, he built it inside as the inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. So the, 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 the basic structure of the temple was the same, that there is the outer area, the holy, and the inner sanctuary, or the, the most holy, the holy of holies. Um, and in front of it, the temple sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The inside of the temple was cedar, carved with ornamental buds and open flowers. All was cedar. There was no stone to be seen. And he prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. So this is the same Ark of the Covenant that was used in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. They did not build a new one. It was the same one. The sanctuary inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold and overlaid the altar of cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. The whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple. Also he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. Inside the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. One wing of the cherub was five cubits high and the other wing of the cherub five cubits ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. So here, um, I don't know if there's a picture here, but, oh yeah, there's a picture coming up. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both cherubim were of the same size and shape. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and the other cher uh, and so was the other cherub. Then he set the cherubim inside the inner room, and they, and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of one touched the one wall, and the wing of the other touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. So here's a picture kind of showing this. So you see this uh, here in the middle. This is the tabernacle, or sorry, the um, Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant also had two cherubs on it, and, and the wings of the two cherubs were touching each other. Okay, But here, this room is much larger than the Holy of Holies that was in the tabernacle, and there's two large cherubs that are in the, in the room, and each cherub has the wings outspread, 
touching the wall on the one side and touching the wing of the other cherub on the other side. Okay, so it looks something like that. All right, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Now everything you see here is gold. Then he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and outer sanctuaries with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuaries. Okay, so everything is covered with gold. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and doorposts were one-fifth one of the wall. The two doors were of olive wood, and he carved on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold, and he spread gold on the cherubim and the palm trees. So there is these images. Uh, that image is coming up. So for the door of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall, and the two doors were of cypress wood, Two panels comprised one folding door, and two comprised the other uh, two panels, the other folding doors. You see here. Um, then he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers on them, and overlaid them with gold applied evenly on the carved work. So there's all of these images of the cherubs, of palm trees, of open flowers, and you can kind of see here. This is a representation. These little things here are all these flowers, many, many, many of them like in a grid. Then here, these are palm trees here. And these are cherubs. So all of like the intricate carvings overlaid with gold all around the walls in the s in inside the temple. Yes. Up until then, uh, I mean, we we found out about cherubim in Isaiah, right? Yes. So up until this point, where we don't know any how do we know about cherubim? Well, maybe the cherubim was mentioned in in the and and like the writings that were included in the scripture but there could have been other mentions of them like extra biblically and the people were familiar with them yeah uh yeah the cherubim were also on the ark yeah so i don't know if uh like i i, I i'm not sure it, it never really explains like here hey this is what the cherubim are and this is the seraphim and this is a lot of that is more kind of like by tradition but uh, but yeah, the cherubim were on the ark too. And he built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished and all its details and according to all its plans so he was seven years in building it so it took seven years um to build remember he had so many uh tens of thousands of workers that were working for this period of uh, seven years so that's the end of the chapter um discussing the details of the temple um we kind of went went briefly over it. we didn't go into a lot of detail about it but um the main thing to know about it is that the basic structure um, of having the, the the holy and the holy of holies is the same, and the the, the the service of the priest would be the same, whether it be in the tabernacle or uh, in in the temple. Also, in the outer court, which wasn't mentioned here, like you still have like um, like the burnt offerings, uh, the altar of burnt offering. Then you also have um, the the brazen altar. The brazen altar is much larger and it's kind of decorated uh, a little differently. But all of the major parts of the tabernacle were also present. In the temple for it to be used the same way. Any final questions or comments? Okay.
Glory be to God forever. Pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing in all things, and we ask, O God, that you help us to understand your word, to be filled, O Lord, with your presence, and to be committed, O Lord, and consecrated to you in our life, that we would lead a life that is pleasing to you, and that we would be a good example to others, and that you would fill us, O Lord, with your spirit, and that we would be content and at peace in this life. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.